Hear the word of God from Judges 13 through 16. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now to Judges 14. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, uh, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She is the right one. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done, and then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they ate it too. And they, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. And now to chapter 16. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The, Philistines, uh, the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. And so Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. And then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, all this time you have been making a fool and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. And so while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened it with the pin. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep 
and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. And so when Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in prison. But the hair on his head began to grow after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of, Philistines, of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, Our god has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who has laid waste, has laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were high in spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers with all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. Hope everyone is doing well this cold, cold morning. We're almost done in our series in the book of Judges, and this is the second to the last one, so next week was going to be our last sermon in the book of Judges. And I hope you've been edified by our time together in this kind of difficult book to preach through. Difficult book to preach through. We're taking a look at the most famous of Judges today, we're looking at Samson. And he was my favorite judge as a kid, I mean, he, I mean how could he not be, right? Super strong, like the Hulk or Hercules, beat up a bunch of guys with the jawbone of a donkey, he was like the biblical equivalent of like a Marvel superhero, right? That's what he was. He was the Hulk. He was Hercules. He was, he was that kid. At least that's the way it was taught to me as a kid. You know, when I went to Sunday school, I was like, oh, but you know Samson, he was super strong. You should read the Bible. That's what I was told. Anybody else? Yes? No? That's just me? We have cool characters in the Bible too, is what people would tell me. And so here's Samson. This story is supposed to be a cool character at first, but that's actually not the message of the story, is it? 
I sent a message to Samson, look, we have cool, super-powered people too. Samson is the 12th and final judge of Israel depicted in the book of Judges. And the stories of Samson's escapades have been described by one commentator as an embarrassment for evangelicals. Another commentator has noted that the chapters encompassing the Samson story may represent the least preached, best-known text in the Bible. Because who really wants to preach on Samson? He's a good story for you to make a flatograph on. He's a good story to for teach your kids about that. He's a strong guy. Look, God can give people strength. But to actually preach on this text is very difficult. What do we make of a deliverer of Israel whose only gift from the Holy Spirit appears to have been enormous physical strength, which existed side by side with enormous character flaws? I want to quickly point you to the words of Charles Spurgeon, who reminded his people that the Old Testament biographies were never written for our imitation, but they were written for our instruction. Does that make sense? When you look at some of these characters of, in the Old Testament, they're not written so that you can be, be just like Samson, be just like David. No, no, no. They're written for our instruction. Can you hear me on this? I want to make sure you guys get that. Because I think that's a mistake we often teach our kids. Be like David. Be like Samson. In some ways, otherwise, please do not be anything like Samson. Let's look today to what we should really glean from the life of Samson. The story said at the beginning at the start of chapter 13, and we read, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines. Does that sound familiar? Please say yes. Okay, just making sure. I've said it over and over again, guys, during this whole series, right? This is the pattern in the book of Judges. The people of God, the people of Israel turn from God and do evil in the sight of the Lord. God gives them to the oppressors, their enemies. They suffer under the yoke of their oppressors. They cry out for deliverance. God hears their cries, sends them a judge to rescue them and then restore justice to the community. That's a general shape. This is the recurring pattern of the book of Judges. But alongside this pattern, there's also what we call, in the Bible project, did a great job of this, pointed out the downward trajectory of Judges. Went from okay to the decent to okay to not very good to very bad. This downward trajectory of Judges. And it's moving the people of Israel, it's showing them and modeling the people of Israel to set themselves into moral anarchy and outright idolatry. The story of Samson occurs near the end of this trajectory, and there are some distinctive signs of this descent present within the text itself. We're told in 13.1 that Israelites, having done evil in the eyes of the Lord, are delivered into the hands of the Philistines. Well, according to the well-established pattern in this book, in the book of Judges, we would expect God's people to cry out for deliverance. Help us, God. We're being oppressed. But that's not what it says. This time in the pattern, it doesn't say they cried out for deliverance. It said no one cried out. I love that. This is such an interesting point. Every other time in the pattern, they're like, oh, we're being oppressed, we're being oppressed. God, we, we cry out to you, we cry out to you, we deliver us. But this time the pattern happens again, and they're so far removed, they're so, so down to descent that they don't realize they should and they could cry out to God. That God is not limited by the faithlessness of his people. Despite the fact that no one cries out for deliverance, God takes the initiative, and the angel appears to a barren woman in a small hillside town of Zora. A miraculous birth is foretold. A barren woman will give birth to a son. This is not the first time this pronouncement happens in the Bible, when an angel predicts a future birth. Nor is it the first time that the Lord has brought life from a previously barren womb, i.e. Sarah and Abraham. The presence of both of these biblical motifs at this point in the story serves to heighten our expectations surrounding the child to be born. The angel's own words even says this. The angel says, you are barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see, that, see too that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and you eat anything unclean. 
You'll become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He'll take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, a Nazarite, guys, was someone who had consecrated themselves to God for a particular length of time by taking a special vow. During the time that they were consecrated or set apart for God's service, Nazarites were abstained from alcohol, avoid coming into contact with dead bodies, and refrain from cutting their hair. This is all in Numbers chapter 6. At the conclusion of this time, a consecration would occur, and they would cut their hair, and they'd offer burnt offerings to God. However, Samson's actually run the mill at Nazarite. He's a Nazarite from birth, even from his mother, even from the womb. Furthermore, he's completely consecrated to God by no choice of his own, but surely at the will of God. So in other words, the whole stage is set. This child is going to be remarkable. And as you read this, as you first getting judges, you should be, I want you to get this. This is what the original readers would be getting, is that, oh man, there's a pronouncement. There's a big movement happening. He's a Nazarite set apart by God from birth, even from the womb. He's going to deliver these people from the Philistines. So this big anticipation is building up. Toward the end of chapter 13, we're told that as he grew, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in Samson. Previously in the book of Judges, the Spirit of the Lord often came upon judges when it was time for them to assemble, a bat, assemble for battle. And they would come in, but instead here, it says the Spirit raised up a one-man wrecking crew. So after such an amazing prologue, what is this deliverer going to be like? What is Samson going to be like? So we turn to chapter 14 with bated breath. And we wait to hear the first words uttered by Samson after he's grown up. And this is what he says. I see the Philistine woman in Timnah. Now go get her from my wife. What on earth? The one born to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines wants to intermarry with them. His parents are quite reasonably objective. They're like, yo, yo, Samson, Samson, isn't that a good Zorahite girl for you to marry? Someone who believes what we believe and practice our beliefs are not into the Canaanite religion and worshiping Dagon and child sacrifice. But Samson's not going to be talked out of it. He's like, no, no, this is what I want. Get her for me. She's the right one for me. And the narrator then tells us the parents did not know that this was from the Lord who is seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. So the narrator's comments frame the tension that runs throughout the whole Samson story. The Lord is looking for an occasion to confront the Philistines, but he seems to be the only one. Samson's parents appear set on avoiding the Philistines at all costs. The people of Judah seem to be content acquiescing to Philistine rule. And in chapter 15, even when Samson begins to stir things up, the, 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 the Israelites are the ones who are so scared. What are you going to do? The Philistines are going to attack us. They're so scared. The only type of conquest over the Philistines, even Samson ones, seems to be only in the marriage bed. So there's this tension that's building up in this story. Nobody wants to mess with the Philistines, but God does. Things get really stirred up between Samson and the Philistines. Not because the Philistines are committing heinous acts of worship, child sacrifices to a false god. Not because they're ruling God's people on God's land. And not because God commanded them to kick him out. No, no. Things are riled up because Samson feels wronged by the father of the woman that he wanted to marry and takes out the Philistines around him. Samson goes says Mary set up an arrangement to marry this Philistine woman, but then he comes back and the dad said, oh, I didn't know you were coming back, so I want you to marry her sister instead. Her, she got married. Samson gets angry, says, fire to all the crops, in a very clever way. Right? He says, you know, I love this story. I love how detailed sometimes the Bible gets for like, sometimes no reason, but sometimes a reason, or the reason you don't know if there's a reason. But he does this really clever trick of how to set all the crops on fire. 
And the Philistines come and they're angry. And they, they go and they killed Samson's uh, other wife or wife and father. Then Samson comes back and kills them. And they go back and forth. And Samson goes and kills a bunch of Philistines and he's hiding out in the cave. So the Philistines come back and they want revenge on Samson. They come back in large armies and they demand, they surround the tribe of Judah and they demand Samson to be turned back in as a prisoner. Now it's interesting to notice how scared the Israelites are at this point. The tribe of Judah is so scared of the Philistines, but they're also so scared of Samson. They sent 3,000 men to go to Samson. And instead of asking Samson, hey, we have 3,000 men, let's fight Samson. They say, Samson, turn yourself in. They're so scared of the Philistines, they say, turn yourself in. Remember, these are the ones, these are the people who followed Moses through the Red Sea, who conquered Jericho through trumpets, who saw a woman conquer their enemy with a tent peg, who saw Gideon defeat chariots. Yet once again, here they are shaking in their sandals. I like the idea. I, I, I thought I'd laugh to myself when I said shaking in their sandals. So Samson voluntarily goes, okay, fine. You guys are so scared. Okay, turn me in. Tie me up, turn me in. So Samson goes, he gets turned in, but then he breaks out, and the famous story, he takes the jawbone of a donkey, and he conquers a ton of, thousands of Philistines. Which, why a jawbone of a donkey? Anybody? Anybody? I don't know either. Why not? Why not? There you go, I like that. <laughs> exactly. I love it, because he's like, yes, under God's power, even a jawbone of a donkey, you can use that, why not? It doesn't have to be a magical sword. Doesn't have to be an incredible spear. Doesn't have to be anything of this huge power. Doesn't have to be chariots. You use the jawbone of a donkey. And he conquers and he fights and he wins. And he says he judges for 20 years as a judge. Now, if the story ended there, it might be okay. He started out bad, he did some stupid things, but in the end, he beat up some Philistines and led the people for 20 years. Not too terrible for a judge. Not ideal, but not great, not terrible. But then we go to chapter 16. And it starts off with one day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. And he went in to spend the night with her. Oh, Samson. Come on, man. You're, you're okay. You're okay. And he saw his decay, his decline, like with Gideon. You saw Gideon making decisions where he started off okay. He told, he told the kings, he said, no, no, I don't want to be king. God is your king. He says the right thing. But inside, what does he do? He names his son your father is king. He takes a tribute from them and builds an idol. And here's Samson, Samson, man, you, you could do the right thing. You could be leading here, doing the right thing. But he says, no, no, this moral decay comes out. It shows itself. And it lends itself to making these decisions. And then he falls in love with a woman named Delilah. Hey there, Delilah. What's Delilah? <laughs> all week, by the way. I was singing that song all week. I can't help myself when songs get stuck in my head like that. All week, that was songs in my head. She does not know what it's like in New York City. But if we don't know, what we don't know is if she's a Philistine or not. We're not sure if she's a Philistine or not. Most scholars tend to think she is due to Samson's infatuation with always choosing a Philistine woman and her desire to do what the Philistines wanted her to do. But we don't know if she was a Philistine or not. But she repeatedly tries to get Samson to tell her source of his power. Now I have to make a quick aside here. How stupid can you be? I mean, is he really that blind in love that he can't tell what's happening here? I mean, she asks him how to control to do him. He tells her an answer, and then she tries it on him three straight times. Come on, man. Seriously. Not only that, there's also Philistines hiding in their house. Like, are you so close? Like, 
what? You tied me up? Oh, we're good? Okay. You go back. And then he doesn't look around. Are there soldiers out here? <laughs> Nothing? Come on, Samson. Put two two together here. Now, a couple of random threads I want to go with here. Is he really that dumb? I mean, I don't think so. If you look at his story, he comes up with riddles. He's clever in his attacks, and he leads people for years. He can't be that dumb, right? Then what is it? Why is he doing this? Why is he falling for this? Well, maybe he's blinded in love and can't see what's wrong with this woman. And that's a possibility, right? People, some of you guys, you, can, you don't have to raise your hand because I don't want to embarrass you. But some of you guys have been so in love that you haven't seen all the flaws in the person you've been so in love with, right? And there are plenty of flaws to see, right? Some of you guys have been so, oh, she's so cute, though, or, or he's so handsome. Right? And you're so in love and you just overlook a lot of flaws, you just, or you just don't see it. And guys, just as an aside here, I'm a big fan of having people in your life that you value and trust to speak over your relationships for this reason. Because I know me, I know you, sometimes we can be stupid and stupid in relationships. Sometimes it's good to have people over your life. That's just completely aside. That's not in the text. I'm just saying that right now for you guys, for your benefit. Have good people in your life if you're pursuing relationships who can help speak to you because sometimes you get blind. Okay, moving on. But go with me for a minute here. This is something different. This is not something out of commentaries I've even said this, but this is something that I've kind of thought about this week. There's something that hit me this week as I was talking to someone else about this text. There's a possibility that the real reason Samson told Delilah is pride. I think Samson thought he was untouchable. Like he really couldn't be beat. Let me explain what I mean. You see, the source of his power was his Nazarite vow. In other words, he was set apart for God and the spirit empowered him. Yet if you look at Samson's life, it seems he may have already broken his Nazarite vow, right? One, he's touched dead things multiple times, specifically people. <laughs> he even took the, uh, clothing off people. He moved people around. But also on top of that, he touched the lion's carcass. Remember the honey, all that stuff? He touched dead things. Number two, although it doesn't say that he drank, it seems logical especially at weddings that he went to where they celebrated through heavy drinking and the, looking at the character of Samson, it might be logical to assume that he did drink, but I'm not saying that he did. Number three, though it doesn't specifically say that a Nazarite vow needs to abstain from sex outside of marriage in number six, it is implied that one is following the rest of the law at the very least. Does that make sense? So, so you see here, there's this chance in Samson's mind He's thinking, okay, maybe it is a Nazarite vow, but honestly, I've kind of broken that multiple times. I've kind of broken the Nazarite vow already. I just haven't done the hair part yet. But the rest of it, I've kind of broken, so, so maybe it's me. Maybe it's not God that made me strong. Maybe I'm just strong. Maybe I'm just powerful. Maybe I'm special. I was born this way. Look how powerful I am. Who cares if I cut my hair? Who cares if I drink? Who cares if I touch dead things? Who cares if I do this stuff? I am all powerful. Maybe it's not God. Maybe it's me. I'm not saying that's what it says. I'm saying that's how I can maybe read this text. To see maybe that is the motivation of Samson here. Don't you see that as a possibility? Don't you see that sometimes in your tendencies of your own life? Maybe it's me. Maybe it's not blessing from God. I'm pretty awesome. I've made great decisions. I work really hard. So yeah, everything that I have is all me. Yeah, I deserve everything. I did it all. And those people who don't have it, well, they must make bad decisions. 
They must be bad people. I'm in charge. I can see him doing that. I can see him saying that because I can see myself saying that. Right? Now it's possible to see Samson right here standing in for the entire people of Israel at this point. Like the people of Israel, Samson was from birth set apart as holy for the Lord. Solely on the basis of God's gracious election. But then Samson's chasing after foreign women is reminiscent of the words of the prophets, which repeatedly describes Israel as chasing after and prostituting himself to foreign gods. After the people of Israel are miraculously rescued from Egypt, they immediately begin to grumble and complain against Moses. And the Lord, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us our children and our livestock die of thirst? Right? And I love this. And similarly, after the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson and he defeated thousands of Philistines with a donkey's jawbone, he immediately cries out, you've given your servant this great victory, must I now die of thirst? Which seems so ridiculous. But like Israel, who was set apart by God's call for God's purposes, Samson here represents Israel in so many different ways. Like Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, who was blinded by the Babylonians and taken into exile, Samson has his eyes put out by the Philistines and led in chains to Gaza. In the story of Samson, we presented a summary form of the story of Israel. This is hinted right at the beginning of chapter 14, where Samson speaks of his desire for the woman Timna. In the NIV, literally Samson says, she's the right one for me. In 14.7, we're told that Samson liked her. Both of these phrases are translations of a Hebrew construction that could be literally translated as, she was good in Samson's eyes. This resonates with the recurring refrain, which kind of shows the spiritual bankruptcy, the moral degeneration of the book of Judges. Right? What do they say? It says, in those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was good in their own eyes. How we're doing what is good in their own eyes is not just limited to the people of Israel. It's... It's what happened in the book of Genesis. It's what happened to us in humankind. It's what happened to the woman at the fruit. It's what happens to us now. In a sense, then, Samuel not only stands in for Israel, he also represents common man and woman doing what was good in our own eyes that led to bondage and to blindness. Dr. Robert Dean states this. Samson lives out the counterintuitive reality of the fallen human being. Doing what is right in his own eyes results not in his freedom, but rather leads into bondage at the hands of the powerful Philistines. The situation is perhaps even more insidious with respect to the tribe of Judah, the Samson story. In doing what is right in their own eyes, they have come to a place where they don't even recognize that there is any problem with their bondage. They now simply take for granted that being ruled over by the Philistines is a normal state of affairs. The plight of Samson and the people of Judah point us towards the precarious plight of fallen humanity. In exercising our own prerogative to do what is right in our own eyes, we simultaneously find ourselves in the deepest bondage to the powers that rule this world. Do you guys get that? Do you see that what is doing right in our own eyes is the problem? Can't you see that today? Don't you see that the prevailing ethic of this day? Do what is right for you. As long as it doesn't hurt me, do what is right for you. And the same problem Samson and the Israelite people had is ours. We, when we try to only do what is right in our own sight, it always leads to bondage. Because here the issue, the issue is our sight, our own eyes. It isn't big enough to see how everything works. It's selfish and it's self-serving. Our sight is not good enough to trust that fruit looked good to Eve. Those women looked like what some of his own eyes wanted. If we did what was in just our own eyes, we don't have the ability to see the depth that God sees. But we think that we're as powerful as Samson is. Samson is powerful and his sight was good enough. 
How about you? What drives your life? Are you motivated and moved by what is right only in your own sight? Or is there something that moves you and guides your life so much more? Are you driven to purpose by your own appetites of what your eyes can see? Or does um, God of the universe, who's called all things to order, move in your heart so that when you live, you live for him and his purposes and his eyes see so much better than our own? I just got to tell you that when you do things for your own sight, motivated by the powers of your own hearts and motivations, it leads to bondage. It leads to you thinking that you're as big as Samson is. And it's a trap. If we turn to our Bible passage this morning, it's important to observe that there's a great turning point that happens in Samson's story. But it occurs after this once mighty hero has been blinded, bound, subjected to mockery and humiliation. Maybe it was a gouging out of his own eyes that liberated Samson from the desire to do what was right in his own eyes. But in this temple that a once mighty warrior cries out to God for help, he has nothing left to offer other than his broken, beaten self. But that is more formidable in God's hands than any time he was at his full strength. From the collapse, following the collapse of the Philistine temple, the narrator tells us that he killed many more when he died than when he lived. Now, I love this many more because the casualties are just casualties, but ultimately, what did he destroy when he destroyed that temple? Symbolically, he destroyed the Dagon, the temple of Dagon, the god of the Philistines. Now, by the grace of God, Samson fulfilled his calling. And entirely by the grace of God, for even in his death, Samson remains a rather kind of a weirdly ambiguous character. Even his final prayer, guys, I'm like, oh, turning point. Samson, you're blind. You're seeing things clearly now. That's great. But even in his prayer, he goes, so that I can have, you know, vengeance for my two eyes. I'm like, oh, Samson, you still missed it. But he delivered his people. But full deliverance from the Philistine threat would, not ha- would have to wait until the days of King David. And even beyond that, full deliverance from the regime of death would have to wait until the arrival of David's son, Jesus See, the story of the deliverer of Samson ultimately points us to the person of the true deliverer, the true Israelite, the true human being who did not do what was right in his own eyes, but rather lived from the freedom that can only be found doing the will of the Father, the one who feared God more than he feared death, our champion, who in his strength handed himself over to be blinded, to be blindfolded and bound, mocked and ridiculed. However, in his dying, he did more than topple over a statue and slay thousands. In his dying, he destroyed death. In his rising, he restored our life. Spurgeon says that Samson took the gates of Gaza upon his shoulders and carried them up the hill of Hebron. Our Christ, in rising from the grave, has shattered the impregnable defenses of death and carried away the infernal gates. Samson toppled the God of the Philistines, but our Jesus drove out the prince of this world. Ultimately, this moral decay that we see in the book of Judges ultimately points us to our biggest, bigger need, is that we need an ultimate deliverer, an ultimate king. His name is Jesus. And as we see, as we try to live life under our own power, in our own ability, it leads to bondage, it leads to failure, it leads to blindness. But when we give ourselves over to someone bigger, who is more powerful, who chooses to take his power and walk and live in humility, when we follow his example, take his free gift of grace and make it our own, then we see that our eyes can be opened up 
and we can be all that we're called and meant to be. My people, I want you to hear this message from the book of Samson so clearly. I believe that the temptation, especially in this Western age, in this Western culture, where we just, and this wealthy culture, is that you believe you can be as powerful as Samson. You believe you can be God. And you control what is right and wrong. You dictate what is good and what is bad in this world. Can I tell you something? If the world hasn't hit you on the side of the head already with that notion, it will. Because you have no control. And you don't have the power. But praise be to God, we have a sovereign king who knows that. And who sent a saving God, a saving Messiah, a saving judge, a deliverer, so we can be connected to him and be ruled by his sight. Amen? Amen. May your eyes not be driven. May your hearts and ambitions not be driven by what your eyes can see alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that for this difficult story of Samson. God, as we see his foolishness, his pride, his hubris, God, may we see ourselves in it, in the story of how he represents Israel and how he also represents us. And God, may we choose this day, now, to not follow whatever our eyes may see, but what our hearts are created for and long for. May we long to be in communion and in relationship with you, following yours, your vision and your goals for our lives, God. That we can only truly experience freedom when we be set free and bound to you. So we move in our hearts. Will you guide us this day? Will you show us that not in our own strength do we conquer, but in yours alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.